Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Thank you for joining us. We're back in Daniel, and we're going to hear the interpretation of this vision today. But as we were preparing for this podcast, Colleen, you were telling me some really interesting things about the angel we're going to meet today. Well, isn't that so fascinating that we're here at the end of Daniel 8? We spent last week looking at the central pillar of Adventism, <laughs> Daniel eight fourteen. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to have Gabriel explain to Daniel what the vision means in an even greater prophetic way. But what I learned in studying for this is that this section here in Daniel 8 is the first place in the Bible where Gabriel is named. This angel shows up and talks to Daniel about this very particular vision. And this first time Gabriel is named, the second time Gabriel is named in the Bible is in the next chapter where he explains to Daniel the next vision. And do you know that there are only four times in the Bible where Gabriel is named? So, the first two are here in Daniel, and the second two are in the book of Luke. He shows up in Luke 1 to Zacharias and announces that Zacharias and Elizabeth are going to have a baby who's going to fulfill prophecy, who will be the Elijah that was to come and that would turn the hearts of men back to their children and children to their fathers in preparation for the Messiah. And then Gabriel appears later in Luke 1 to Mary and announces that she is going to bear the Son of God, God the Son, incarnate as a man. That's it. That's Gabriel (laughs) in the Bible. And I don't, I mean, I'm not drawing conclusions. I just think it's fascinating that the first two times are here in the book of Daniel when Daniel, the Jewish prophet, is a slave in an imprisoned exile in the kingdom of Babylon, and he's getting told the future of the Jewish nation before the nation is released from its exile. And then the next time Gabriel is named and shows up is at the beginning of the New Testament, essentially. It's written about by the only Gentile Bible author in the New Testament, Luke, and it's to announce prophecy is fulfilled and the Messiah is coming. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that's so interesting. It really is. I had never heard that before. It's almost as if he bookends the intertestamental period, isn't it? It It is. Yeah. Gabriel kind of brings it to an end and he starts it off. And, <laughs> and it's still centered on what God is doing through the Jews, which is fascinating. It really is. So, I I learned that there are only two good angels that are named in the Bible, and that is Gabriel and Michael, the archangel, also mentioned for the first time here in Daniel. And then they did bring up, of course, Lucifer, Uh but But not a good angel. But not a good angel. (laughs) (laughs) But that is actually really interesting that we have Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. Yeah. And Michael, just by the by. It's not Jesus. Nope. If my friend Cheryl is listening, we agree, Cheryl. He is not Jesus. (laughs) We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 10. Well, this is going to end chapter 8, and we're going to read from verse 15 through verse 27 and hear what the angel has to say to Daniel and also hear a little bit about Daniel's reaction to the angel. So, Nikki, would you just start us off and read the section, please? Sure. Beginning in verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, 
And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now when he was talking to me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. That poor man was terrified. Yeah, well, that was pretty intense, what he learned. No kidding. Well, let's go back to the beginning of this section. When Daniel, after he's seen the vision, is really struggling to understand it. And what does he there see in verse 15 and 16? What does he see as he's struggling to understand the horror of that little horn that came out of the shaggy goat? He saw someone before him who looked like a man. And this man, who's not identified, but we can probably assume it's an angel, speaks and calls out to whom? He called out to Gabriel, and he told Gabriel to give Daniel an understanding of the vision. So, last week we talked about the vision um, based on what Daniel had seen, and we talked about what a lot of commentators have said about it, and we concluded that everything that is explained about this little horn that came out of the shaggy goat appears to have been pointing toward Antiochus Epiphanes, Mm -hmm. and that definitely seems to be true. But we start to learn something a little bit broader, a little bit deeper, perhaps, from this angelic description. What do we learn in verse 17 that tips us off that there's maybe a little more to know? Well, the angel tells him that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, that's interesting, because was Antiochus the time of the end? No. And how do we know what the time of the end is? Well, there are references to the time of the end all through Scripture, and it's always referring to the last days. That's right. The last days of before the Lord comes and establishes His kingdom. Mm -hmm. So, even though we're talking about the kingdom of Greece, and that's very clear in this passage, like we discussed last week, Mm -hmm. and even though this little horn is arising out of one of those four little horns that uprooted the big horn of Greece— 
there's still some sort of a foreshadowing of something beyond that. And I think it's fair to make these applications because the angel himself says it applies to the time of the end. Yeah, and I've seen some people, and I know the Adventists do this, they mistake this to mean that this is the little horn in Daniel 7. Exactly. And it's an oversimplification of what's being said here, because the little horn in Daniel 7 came out of the final kingdom, the 10 king stage. Yes. And this little horn comes out of the third. That's right. So it's not exactly the same. That's it's not, not the same man. And that's not what Gabriel says. No. He said the vision pertains to the time of the end. Pertain means, it, it doesn't eliminate the idea that it could have a telescoping fulfillment. Pertain right. means to belong to something, to to have a relationship with something. Yeah, that's a really good point. It can apply directly to what's coming out of the kingdom of Greece, but there's a relationship also to the time of the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important and and helps me as I think through this to remember that this particular vision is given to Daniel in the language of Hebrew. Mm -hmm. What does that suggest? Well, the audience yes. reads Hebrew. Exactly. <laughs> the audience is Jewish. This is for a Jewish audience. This is not a vision pertaining, <laughs> to use that word, to the Gentile world specifically, as the previous one in Daniel 7 was, an overview of the nature of the kingdoms that would summarize the Gentile nations, which would be ended by the judgment of the Ancient of Days who takes his throne and would destroy the blaspheming little horn that rises out of the fourth kingdom. That was a Gentile-specific dream and given in the language of Aramaic. Mm -hmm. But now we're in Hebrew and we're learning what Daniel is telling his own people about their own future. So there is a foreshadowing, not only of the coming of Antiochus, but of something beyond that. I think it's interesting just to look around other places in Scripture and see the things that it says that lets us know that there's something more coming beyond Antiochus that, that, that Gabriel could be referring to. For one thing, Gabriel tells Daniel, this is pertaining to the time of the end, and the phrase, the time of the end, is going to be used three more times in this book. It will be used a little bit later, um, just a couple verses down in verse 19, in 819. It will be used in Daniel 1135 and Daniel 1140, and we'll obviously get to that later. But this phrase, the time of the end, is very specific, and it's also very important to remember that the time of the end is the specific wording, and the Bible never uses the phrase, the end of time. And I think a lot of people think that the Bible talks about the end of time, but it doesn't actually use that phrase. The time of the end is used, however. So, we see references to this time of the end and the suggestion that something terrible will happen in different places in Scripture. For example, in Matthew 24, 21, Jesus himself says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And in the context, Jesus is not talking about the events of Antiochus Epiphanes. They've already happened mm -hmm. when he says those words. So, he is talking about something future. We also see that there are references to someone called the Antichrist at various places in Scripture. And Antiochus, while he is definitely a 
you might call him an antichrist character, although Christ hadn't actually come on earth yet. He is definitely demonically driven. He is definitely challenging the the most high God and destroying God's own worship set up in the temple and establishing himself and the God of Zeus as the objects of worship. He's definitely evil, but he's not necessarily the person that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. Nikki, you had some references to the Antichrist there. Yeah, the text I always think of when we talk about the Antichrist is from Second Thessalonians. The first 12 verses of chapter 2 talk about this man. And, you know, the people had been told that the last day had already come, and Paul's saying, no, you, you know better than this. Don't be shaken when people try to disturb you. And he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Wouldn't you have loved to be there? I've thought that so often. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time... He will be revealed. So, and he goes on and talks about the fact that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we know from Ephesians 2, when when we read about being dead in our sins, the people who are walking around dead in their sins are influenced by this prince of the power of the air, the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. Yes, exactly. And that's everybody. Every one of us who is born is born under the influence of this spirit at work in the children of disobedience. And what sets people who are going to be with the Lord, apart from those who will not, is believing in Jesus Mm -hmm. and being born again, and thus being transferred by the Father, as it says in Colossians 1.13, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. So, there's only two places where a person can be. Mm -hmm. Don't let it seem alarming when we talk about the Antichrist or the the power of the lawless one, he's already at work in the world. Mm-hmm. We're already born under his influence. And the Lord intercedes and comes into our lives. He interrupts us in our darkness and says, here I am, trust me instead. There's one more text that I want to read that is very interesting to me in the context of this passage in Daniel. And this is another thing that lets me know that Antiochus cannot be the ultimate end. If Gabriel is talking about the time of the end, there is yet something coming. And I want to mention this because it's in Luke 21, 20 to 24, and Jesus is speaking here. He's talking to his disciples, and it's very clear that the first part of this little passage is discussing what's going to happen very shortly after Jesus's time on earth is done, when Titus the Roman will come in and destroy Jerusalem, tear down the temple, and exile the Jews into the great diaspora that has persisted for over 2,000 years, only ended officially with the establishment of a state of Israel in 1948, but still an unbelieving nation. So, here's what Jesus says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. 
Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Notice that wrath to this people. He's talking about the Jews in Jerusalem. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And here it is, Nikki. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And somehow that looks different to me now that I've been looking at these visions in Daniel. Because remember Daniel 7? The picture of those horrible beasts that describe the four basic nations of the world. Mm -hmm. And that little horn that's blaspheming, and suddenly the Ancient of Days takes his seat, the thrones are set up, and he casts that little horn into judgment, and then the Son of Man is presented to him and takes the kingdom. We see in Daniel exactly when the times of the Gentiles are going to end. Those Gentile nations end when the Ancient of Days casts that blaspheming little horn into judgment, and Jesus takes the throne. And so, the times of the Gentiles are not over yet. Jerusalem is still being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That little horn business hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I love that word in there, until. And something jumped out at me as well as you were reading, where Jesus said that this is so that everything that was written will be fulfilled. And there are so many people who struggle to know what to do with Israel. And I want to say, our God, who wrote this book, says that everything that was written will be fulfilled. That is such a great point. So unless he tosses it, I don't think we get to. Well, we come now to verse 18, after Gabriel has said he's going to explain, you know, and says vision pertains to the time of the end, and what happens to Daniel? (laughs) He sank into a deep sleep with his face to the ground, but this being touched him and made him stand upright. I couldn't help but think of Abraham. I did too. (laughs) Did you? Yes. Just in a deep sleep, but fully aware of what God was doing as he made this covenant with him. And it's interesting to me, too, that this angel, who was apparently Gabriel here, touching him and making him stand up, and it reminded me, I mean, actually, I saw a reference in my marginal notes to Ezekiel 2.2, where a heavenly being comes and talks to Ezekiel, and he is devastated, prostrated on the ground. And this angel also, in Ezekiel 2, made him stand up, and it says right there in Ezekiel, so he could speak to him. He wanted him aware. He wanted him awake, not just hiding and devastated and overwhelmed by the glory. So, here's the angel saying, okay, I get it, Daniel, but stand up. And you know what? I think that it's a good place here to just plug in the fact that this is very contrary to the syncretistic New Age Christian ideas about angels, where we can command them, or there are buddies. And it's a very different picture of the human angel relationship than we're given by charismatic Christians and New Age. Yeah, angels are messengers of God. They're fearsome creatures, Mm -hmm. if you see them in all their natural glory that God has given them. Wasn't it interesting that when Daniel fell to the ground. The angel didn't say, fear not. No, he (laughs) He just got to it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So, what happens in the next verse? 
So he said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur in the final period of indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And there's that phrase again, the appointed time of the end. And he refers to the indignation, the final period of the indignation. I think that there's something significant about that. I agree. It's as if he's punting us now into the future. Plus the appointed time of the end. All of this is foreknown. It's not accidental. We're not bringing in the kingdom. We're not finishing the work so Jesus can come back. All of these dates are set. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you mentioned that the Bible doesn't say the end of time. It's not like God wound up a clock and we're waiting for that dinger to go off. No. He has an appointed time, and whenever that is, is the end. That's the time of the end. And it's known only to God, which is what Jesus told his disciples. Mm-hmm. The time of the return of the Son of Man is only known to God. And there's so. no indication that 2,300 evenings and mornings will help us understand when that is. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's a great relief to me. <laughs> so we move from this point into verse 20, which is just simply an identification of the ram. What does Gabriel tell him? Well, he says, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. If anybody wonders if this is like a different set of beasts for a different purpose, this angel is being very clear. We are revisiting Media and Persia, and we're revisiting Greece with more detail in this vision. And we know that this vision is being given to Daniel specifically in Hebrew for the Israelite people to understand what's going to happen to them as a nation. Then we move to verse 21, and here begins a section that's a little different in nature. What do we learn in 21? Well, we learn that the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Who is? History tells us it was Alexander the Great. Right. And then 22 moves into the next phase of Greek history. What does it say there? Well, that first horn is broken. And then four horns arose in its place, and they represent four kingdoms. But not quite with the power of the first one. So after we learn that there's a little reiteration of the fact that Greece was going to lose its first major king, Alexander, who had in 10 years accomplished all of the known world at that point. And then he died and his kingdom was divided up among his four major generals. And then in verse 23, what do we learn? So it says in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. And speaking of intrigue, I was intrigued by the fact that when we start with verse 23 here, just looking at the format Mm -hmm. in the text, everything is written just a little bit different. It's more like poetry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't say that means anything, but everything that he's going to go on to say moving forward, it looks to me like it is prototypical of what's going to happen at the end. I agree. There's something significant about the fact that verses 23 to 26 are written more like poetry than like prose. At least in the way they're formatted, you get the suggestion that in Hebrew, perhaps it was more like poetry. It's a little bit like it happens in Jeremiah. A lot of the prophetic passages are written in poetry instead of just the prose of narrative. It's an interesting thing that that's happening here. And this is the section of this chapter where we start getting definite foreshadowing of something beyond Antiochus. 
So in verse 23, we definitely see that Antiochus does apply in the latter period of their rule, meaning these four kings, a king would arise who would be insolent and skilled in intrigue. And definitely Antiochus Epiphanes fulfills that. In fact, from what we've talked about already about him, he was likely demon-possessed. He was likely a completely evil man who was bent on destroying God's holy people, Israel. But it also begins to look like there may be another later period, especially since the angel keeps saying it pertains to the time of the end that there will be someone who will rise who's insolent and skilled in intrigue. What does that mean, insolent and skilled in intrigue? Well, his insolence, he's in your face. Yeah. And skilled in intrigue would be deceptive. Yeah. Ambiguous, deceptive, clever. So, this is a king who is going to be in your face or insolent is is really, he's not going to back down. When somebody tries to intimidate him, he's in charge. But at the same time, he's going to be able to get his way by deceiving and being ambiguous so that nobody knows exactly what he's planning. He can kind of manipulate people and he will succeed. And Tychus Epiphanes clearly did this. He in history, did. we can mm-hmm. see that he, he managed to get a lot of the Jews to apostatize. And Absolutely. To, to cover up the mark that set them apart as Jewish. But we also see in here a foreshadowing of what we know about the Antichrist, beginning with when the transgressors have run their course. According to scripture, there will come a time when the full measure of the transgressions of the people will be Absolutely. met out. And then we enter into these times of the end. You had talked to me before we did the podcast, Nikki, about this whole idea of transgressions having run their course or in the fullness of time or when iniquities have reached their fullness. Could you share a little of that, please? Yeah. Well, I'm always fascinated by the patterns in Scripture. And as I was reading through some of the notes some of the commentators had written out that are shared on Precept Austin, they talked about this pattern of sin being completed. And one of the examples they give is from Genesis fifteen sixteen. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Mm-hmm. And then we have Jesus's own words to the Jews in Matthew 23, 32. He says to them, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And then we see in First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church there, and he's talking about how they have endured these sufferings by their own countrymen, and he says that um, they killed these men, killed Jesus and the prophets, and they drove the apostles out. And he says, they're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. And the Septuagint, it's interesting, it's it's translated as run their course, which means to fill up to the brim. So there's this idea in scripture mm-hmm. that that there's this fullness. That yes. it, it reminds me of the patience of, of God, yeah. you know, to wait on these things. In fact, he allowed Israel to be in Egypt for all those years and allowed Egypt to run the course until he decided, no, you're done. I'm taking my people out. I mean, we just see this over and over. That's the image here in verse 23, when it talks about this little horn that comes to power. So, Gabriel says, 
in the latter period of these four horns rule, when their transgressions have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. And then he goes on and says more things about this king. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Well, what is Gabriel saying about this future king? What does it mean when he says his power will be mighty, but not by his own power? It reminds me of the Antichrist in the future. His power will be given to him by the dragon, and all of it is allowed by God. Of course. But this isn't just, you know, some super guy who who's really powerful. This no. is spiritually driven. And again, I look at this and I see both a historical fulfillment and a future fulfillment because Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, he was able to destroy to an extraordinary degree and he prospered and he performed his will and he caused, remember, the stars to fall, yes. <laughs> the host to yes. be trampled. Mm-hmm. And But it also says in the text that God gave the host over to him to be trampled on. And then 25... And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. What does that tell us about this horn power? Some people have argued that this verse is our evidence that this has nothing to do with Antiochus Epiphanes because the Prince of Princes is seen as the Messiah and the Mm -hmm. Messiah had not yet come. But opposing the Prince of Princes is the heartbeat of anti-Semitism. Absolutely. This is why Israel has always been Satan's target before Messiah and even after. I don't see it quite like they do. But he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. Doesn't that remind you of the delusion that's going to come on the people who refuse to believe in Christ in the latter days? It's interesting that you can say Antiochus Epiphanes also fulfills these definitions. He was broken without human hands. No no person killed him. You were reading to me a really interesting passage from the Maccabees about his end, and it appears he went into a terrible funk when he realized the depth of his own evil and the lack of success he ultimately had. Yeah, he he called his friends to him. He, he became very sick, and he called his friends to him, and he said, Sleep is departed from my eyes, for my heart is sinking with anxiety. I said to myself, Into what tribulation have I come, and in what floods of sorrow am I now? Yet I was kindly and beloved in my rule— But I now recall the evils I did in Jerusalem when I carried away the vessels of gold and silver that were in it and for no cause gave orders that the inhabitants of Judah be destroyed. I know that this is why these evils have overtaken me, and now I am dying in bitter grief in a foreign land. And then we look back at Daniel 7 again, and we see that fourth beast with a little horn that's blaspheming, and it is not taken down by any man. It is taken down by the Ancient of Days who punishes it and throws it into the lake of fire. So God himself brings down the future Antichrist king who will be raging against the people of God. I love this verse in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 about this moment. It says, Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Doesn't that sound like that stone? It does. 
absolutely does. And we know from the vision in Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 that the Gentile kingdoms will be brought to an end by God. Jesus himself will take the kingdom and have an eternal kingdom. And all of this, the times of the Gentiles will be over, and God is going to win in the end. There's no mystery about how this will end, even though we don't know the details. And finally, Gabriel says to Daniel, the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. Remember, that was that key verse, Daniel 8, 14, unto 2300 evenings, mornings, then shall the sanctuary be reconstituted. Anyway, he says, the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. What do we know from this? Yeah, this was a curious one for me. Because he tells Daniel to keep it secret, yet here it is in the eternal word of God. Right. Um, I was reading again on Precept Austin. They were saying there are different versions of translation that say seal up the vision. And in some passages, this can mean to authenticate or certify. But in the present passage, it's more compatible with shutting the vision for safekeeping and preservation the verb could allude to the ancient practice of making a scroll secure and preserving it by shutting it with a wax seal. And the words keep secret can mean to stop up or to plug up, to stop the function of a well by filling it. They concluded that Daniel was told to seal up the vision in the sense of concluding it, not in the sense of keeping it a secret from everybody, because it needed to be preserved for the future. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Plus, for Daniel, both Antiochus and the Antichrist were in the distant future. Both were future to him. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't possibly see everything that we can see looking back from this side of the cross 2,000 years ahead of the cross. We can look back and see very clearly how Antiochus did come out of Greece, how Antiochus did persecute the Jews and destroy their worship, and how he was destroyed himself. But we also, with Daniel, can look ahead and see that there is still an Antichrist to come. Mm -hmm. Daniel 7 makes that clear. It's really important. Adventists say that the little horn of Daniel 8 is the same as the little horn of Daniel 7. It is not the same person, Mm -mm. but their driving power may be the same. Both little horns are demonically driven and equally destructive, perhaps. Well, and Colleen, you were talking about the way Revelation, the book of Revelation, talks about that beast. Can you share a little about that? That was interesting to me in this context. Well, it was to me too, and I actually got this idea from S. Lewis Johnson, the the late expositor, and he said that he believes that this little horn of Daniel 8, who comes out of Greece, also foreshadows the Antichrist described in Revelation 13, when the beast comes out of the sea. Because the beast that comes out of the sea is like a leopard. It has feet like a bear. It has a mouth like a lion. And what does that sound like? It sounds like the beasts in Daniel's vision. Of Daniel 7. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, it doesn't sound like the fourth beast exclusively in Daniel 7, but this beast, which is 
doing the work of the Antichrist in Revelation 13 is like a leopard with feet like Medo-Persia, with a raging mouth like Babylon. But the beast itself is like a leopard. And his take on this, and he, he wasn't dogmatic about it by any means, but he said, it seems to him that there is a foreshadowing here of this little horn in Daniel 8, which comes out of Greece, that suggests that the Antichrist of the future may somehow be connected with the region of the world that is associated with Greece. I just thought that was really interesting, ethnically or politically, who knows. But there is a possibility that there is a relationship. And I think we have to say, knowing that the words mean things, that the words are significant, the fact that John's beast in Revelation reflects the animals in Daniel's vision has to be significant. John would have known about the beasts of Daniel. His Jewish readers would have known about the beasts of Daniel. There would have been a resonance to hear that. So, whatever the case, we can say nothing is an accident in the Word of God. And I just want to say one more thing. We were talking about this too, Nikki, before we started. Sometimes when people talk about prophecy, others will rise up and say, you can't figure out prophecy. You can't believe the words. You can't take the words literally. It's all symbol. And I want to say, yeah, there's symbolic language, but that doesn't mean we don't read the passages the way we would read a normal book. Normal poetry, normal biographies, normal novels have figurative speech in them, and we always know when we're reading figurative speech. Figurative speech is a way of explaining something that's really difficult to explain. It gives us a sense of relating to something with an emotional response or a a kind of a perception For example, if I say, her lips were cherries and her cheeks were apples, would you think she had fruit on her face? (laughs) No. No. We would know that her cheeks were pink and rosy like an apple and her lips were red like a cherry. That's what we would understand that to mean. So, we can look at these things in the Bible. And the angel is clearly telling Daniel what the beasts are what kingdoms they represent. And he's clearly telling Daniel that the horns are kings. But then he goes on to describe the way these horns are going to function, and he uses a lot of figurative language. And we get from the figurative language the nature of the kingdoms, the nature of the beasts, but we don't think for a minute that we're going to look out our window and see a raging beast with iron teeth and bronze claws. We know that something is coming that's going to have that kind of ferocity we understand. So, it's still the best practice to read even prophecy using the normal rules of grammar and punctuation and vocabulary and context. And figurative language does have a literal meaning. And you can usually get that just from reading the context of the passage. Right. Well, what's the ending of this chapter, Nikki? I actually really love this. Well, poor Daniel. He says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. (laughs) Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. So he was preoccupied with this vision. He was sick. It made him physically sick. But this faithful man of God got up and did the mundane work of serving King Belshazzar. (laughs) Do the next right thing. Yeah. That is amazing. As we look at this chapter and we come to the end of it, we realize, if we look ahead at all, that this explanation that 
Gabriel gives Daniel is the beginning of some prophecies concerning the far future and the ways they're going to impact the Jews. There's going to be more to come. We can look back in history and see some of these events already verified, but we also can see that there's events that haven't happened yet, and the words of Gabriel let us know that more is coming. The time of the end hasn't happened yet. But God has granted these visions, these insights into the future of the world as He directs and sovereignly brings about the progress of history and the ultimate end of the times of the Gentiles. And we can know some things. Evil men are not running amok in the universe. God is in charge. Satan is not a free-floating evil power who's equally opposed to Jesus in trying to get the loyalty of men to vindicate the character of God. No, Satan is a subset of creation. He is evil, and he is not allowed to go beyond the boundaries that God has placed for him. So ultimately, we now, today, as we read this book, we can know that if we trust the Son, we're safe. We can know that all these doom predictions can't accurately tell us the details of the fate of the earth, but we can know that God is going to bring about the time of the end and the end of the times of the Gentiles at exactly the time He has purposed to do it. And we, if we have trusted Jesus, will be safe from all the terrors that will fall on the world. So if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't trusted the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy who came, announced by Gabriel, and brought about the punishment, the atonement for human sin, he experienced the wrath of God as he hung on the cross and he broke the curse of death on the third day because his payment of blood, his payment of the perfect sacrifice was enough to pay for all the sin that has ever been committed in the world. And if you haven't trusted him with yourself, with your own sin, with your own depravity, and realized that he has risen from the grave to give you eternal life, then now is the time to trust him. And we pray that you will. Join us next week as we begin chapter 9 and read about Daniel's prayer for his people. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.